So I was really concerned about my own health, about my husband's health since he has this autoimmune condition. Um, I wasn't concerned about the kids because everybody said kids didn't get very sick. Among the things I'm seeing that I'm really concerned about are graded exercise therapy recommendations for people with COVID. Like, we've seen this already with uh, ME-CFS, that graded exercise therapy is the worst possible thing you can do when your body just can't adjust to exercise and exertion. And what I'm seeing with COVID is that any attempt to push yourself gets punished. But there are some people who are ending up bedridden because they tried to push themselves and they're ending up sicker than they were in the first place. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. When I saw that Chandra Pasma was interviewed by media outlets and that she led the push for health officials to acknowledge and act upon patients still sick with COVID, I knew I needed to reach out to her and find out her experiences with COVID and the healthcare system. While the medical system has long known, but rarely acknowledged, that some people don't recover from viral infections and instead continue to experience a wide range of neurological symptoms, the COVID pandemic and patient advocates like Chandra are forcing healthcare systems to address the research, treatment, and care of long-haul COVID patients. And by extension, the millions of others who previously got sick with the flu, but remain sick, sometimes so ill they are house and bedbound, requiring total personal support. You may be asking yourself, if medicine has known for a long time some people don't recover from viral infections, why haven't they been researching it? Mostly it is because there is widespread and embedded medical error in the medical system. So embedded, most physicians are blind to it, just like fish don't see water. This institutional error is the physician's ingrained habit of telling patients with physical symptoms with no obvious cause that they are all in your head. This is known informally in patient circles as gaslighting. It is more formally called medical harm, and it is a pandemic unto itself. 
But with millions of people infected with COVID and early reports that at least one in 10 are not recovering, it will be near impossible for physicians to dismiss long-haul COVID patient symptoms as all in your head. The cruel irony is that biological research on people with post-viral illnesses like ME-CFS and SARS has been mostly non-existent. And we can thank psychiatry, the least reputable division of medicine, for impeding biological research funding and instead embedding medical error in the form of gaslighting in healthcare systems around the world. So this may be one of the good things that come out of the COVID pandemic, stopping the medical harm from physicians and psychiatrists of patients who don't recover from viral infections. You can support the podcast by subscribing on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you're struggling with your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Chandra Pasma and a word of warning that some folks may be triggered by Chandra's experiences with the healthcare system. So I always begin my uh, interviews the same way. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Uh, so I grew up on a farm in southern Ontario about half an hour outside of London and I had an idyllic rural Canadian childhood um, I had to do farm chores, but other than that, I was free to run around. Um, you know, I walked and biked for kilometers around my house with my sisters and no parental supervision, so it was great. What kind of farm did you grow up on? Dairy farm. Oh, yeah. Morning and night. No getting away from that. Yeah, and I was not into the farm chores, but, you know, I did my fair share. <laughs> Uh, so what did you do when you left the farm? So I um, first went to university in the States and then I moved to Ottawa to attend Carleton University. And uh, since I've graduated, I've worked mostly in the field of um, policy, uh, either directly, directly through politics or at not-for-profits and labor unions. Okay. And why did you go to the U.S. for some of your education? Uh, I grew up in a small religious community, the Christian Reformed Church, and uh, there's a university there that's affiliated with that denomination. Okay. Today, we're talking about your health and how it intersected with the COVID pandemic. So tell us a, a, a little bit about your health before the pandemic. How was it generally? And then tell us about how the onset happened to you and your family. So I have not had a great health year. 
Um, I have had issues within the past five years of recurrent bacterial pneumonia. And in February, I caught a cold and it turned into bacterial pneumonia. And it was diagnosed the first week of March by my family doctor. Um, so I was really concerned hearing that there was another pandemic that had uh, a pneumonia-like illness um, because I felt like I was particularly prone to pneumonia and that therefore I would be particularly at risk if I got this illness. We were supposed to actually be going to Europe for this period. I had a part-time job working at a, a public research unit in the UK and the week that this was declared a global pandemic, we had a lot of urgent conversations about can we afford to do this? Is this safe to do? And we decided it wasn't and that we were best um, if we just hunkered down here in Canada and waited it out. And uh, ironically, the very day that we were supposed to leave, while I was still on antibiotics for the bacterial pneumonia, I started to feel um, a burning sensation in my ear canals, which nobody had said was a symptom of COVID. So, you know, I, I thought I was coming down with something, but I didn't think it was COVID and I didn't think I needed to worry. Um, and then two days later, my husband started to feel extremely tired, like to the point where he was napping in the middle of the morning. Um, but he has had uh, ME-CFS for the past 15 years. And it had obviously been a very stressful week uh, between making that decision not to go and um, hunkering down because of the pandemic. So I thought it was just a reaction to what was happening around us. Um, but then I started developing a cough and chest pain and felt rapidly unwell. And our kids all came down with sore throats and fevers. So that was the point that I was like, oh no, I think this is COVID. But at that point, you know, all the emphasis was on um, pneumonia and uh, the, the respiratory distress and all the information suggested that if you were going to develop that it would be really rapid and if you didn't you would be sick for maybe 14 days and then you would feel better and everything would be fine. So I was really concerned about my own health, about my husband's health since he has this autoimmune condition um, I wasn't concerned about the kids because everybody said kids didn't get very sick. So, you know, I spent the first two weeks mostly hoping that I wouldn't develop pneumonia and that my husband would be okay. And that was the full horizon of my worry. And um, I had no idea that instead it was the beginning of this uh, journey that's now going on four months and you know I'm hoping I see light at the end of the tunnel but we still haven't reached the end of the journey. So uh, here we are uh, almost near mid-July and how what is the status of each member of your family's health in relation to COVID? You've got three kids. Yeah so each of us have had a different presentation and a different experience, but in a lot of ways, we kind of mirror the trends that I'm seeing among uh, long-term COVID survivors. Um, so my oldest daughter and my husband had the most mild symptoms and they've had periods where they've been asymptomatic and I think, okay, they've beaten it, it's done. And then their symptoms will come back. And right now their symptoms are both really mild they're sneezing more than usual. 
and uh, Matt, my husband, is uh, tireder than usual. Um, and even then, it's a bit like CFS in that it's cyclical. So one day he'll have a bit more energy, and then the next day he has no energy and he can't really do anything. My seven-year-old twins uh, had symptoms much more constantly. Um, my daughter, Clara, especially, she's been coughing now since the middle of March um, without a break. Now, it has gotten much better than it was, but it has never gone away. And there have been times where we thought it was getting a lot better and was about to be done, and then all of a sudden it gets a bit worse. So there's a bit of a cyclical pattern there, but you know the same symptoms happening constantly. And my, um, my symptoms, I basically for the first 10 weeks had new symptoms develop every five to six days. So I would get through something and I would think, okay, that's done. I'm feeling better, I'm ready to move on and something new would hit. And then around the uh, 10 week mark, I had a period of a couple days where I felt pretty good and I thought, okay, I'm finally done. And then all the symptoms cycled again from the beginning. And it was kind of like a mini three week cycle. And then I had um, another period of two weeks where I felt pretty good, just uh, you know, some tinnitus and dry eyes and um, blowing my nose a bit more than usual. And then I've had another little cycle. And this one has been like, a week so the cycles are getting shorter and the symptoms are milder while I have the cycle but it's still happening so like I say there's light at the end of the tunnel in that things are improving we're in a lot better shape than we were three months ago um, but I have no idea when we're finally going to be symptom free and if we do have a week or two where we're symptom free I'm not going to use the R word because I have no idea if we're going to relapse and see those symptoms happen all over again. Yeah, so the cycle part, that's so uh, puzzling. Have you been able to discern any pattern, triggers? Um, there is definitely an association with exertion, but it's not necessarily obvious in that, you know, I haven't gone out for any five kilometer runs um, Cleaning our entire house in one day was a huge milestone for us. You know, it took three months to, to get up the energy to do that. So it's not like I've been out overexerting myself. Um, the one time that I had a definite relapse of symptoms, it was because I spent an hour uh, sweeping and vacuuming. So it can be pretty low level exertion. And sometimes there's not an obvious trigger level of exertion that happens. And with the kids, you know, there's been no discernible pattern. My oldest daughter, she'll be asymptomatic for 10 days and then not do anything differently. And out of the blue, she'll suddenly have skin sores or she'll have a sore throat. Wow. And have you noticed if there's a delayed reaction, this dysfunctional reaction to exertion, is it delayed, immediate? It depends a little. So, um, some of the larger symptoms, it's definitely a delayed reaction. Um, so, you know, in the case of when I relapsed after doing the sweeping and vacuuming, it wasn't that day. It was the next day in the evening that it set in. Um, but I do have, because uh, one of my symptoms has been pleural inflammation. So the, the lining of the chest gets inflamed. If I'm walking, 
or doing physical activity, sometimes I will start to feel that while I'm still doing the activity. And then as soon as I pull back, the inflammation dies down and the pain goes away. Okay, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that word, plural? Yeah, so there's a plural lining around the outside of your lungs. So I had a severe case of pleurisy in the fourth week. Um, I had been very concerned in the third week that I had a relapse of the bacterial pneumonia. Um, and my doctor was concerned too because I had chest pain. So she uh, consulted with a respirologist and they put me on another dose of antibiotics. And that took care of the chest pain. And then four days later, I started to have an intense burning sensation in my chest. And my first reaction was to panic that it was pneumonia and it was happening, you know, four months into, or sorry, not four months, four weeks into the illness. Um, but there's a lot of breathing exercises being circulated on social media. And when I did the breathing exercises, I could feel that the pain was happening outside my actual lungs. Like there would be pressure and pain when I took a deep breath, but it wasn't in the lung, it was outside the lung. And so when I spoke to my doctor, she confirmed that that was the pleural lining. And, you know, the, um, the pain was intense enough for the first time that I had it, that I was actually bedridden for two weeks. Because if I even sat up for more than 30 minutes, the pain was so intense, I couldn't take it. Um, and since then, it's been uh, much more moderate. You know, it will just be like a tightness or a burning sensation in my chest. And I know that's a signal that I need to pull back so I don't keep doing activity, but you know, I can still sit up, I can still walk around and that's fine. Wow, wow, that sounds very frightening to be a bedroom for two weeks. Yes, it was. So how has your experience been with the healthcare system during all this? Because you're already under the doctor's eye with the bacterial infection and just sort of segued into the whole COVID thing. Yeah, so my experience has been pretty up and down. So when I first called my doctor, we found out that one of our neighbors um, at the kids bus stop was one of the first people in Ottawa to be hospitalized for COVID. Um, so I called my doctor and told her we had had this known exposure. I talked her through all of our symptoms and she agreed. It sounds like COVID. Um, you know, we had some of the classic symptoms like Matt lost his sense of smell and my son Luke had conjunctivitis. Um, but she told us to just stay home and keep managing our symptoms. Um, and that's when she prescribed me antibiotics in consultation with the respirologist. Um, so that was really good. And then uh, around the 30-day mark, I ended up going to the emergency room because my glands were hugely swollen. I had full body aches um, and it felt like, you know, I had an infection uh, like pneumonia, but they did, um, they did x-rays, they did blood work and urinalysis and everything looked fine. Um, but at that point, they also did a swab. So that was the first test I had for COVID and it was negative, um, which, you know, given what we know now, the longer the period of time between the onset of your symptoms and when a test is taken, the greater the likelihood that you have a negative test um, sorry, a false negative test. So the virus could have been somewhere else in my body, but it's not in my throat anymore. So it's not being caught by the swab. But, you know, what, given what we also know, the virus could have been gone at that point and everything I've had since then could be an autoimmune reaction to the virus or to dead viral particles. 
Um, but it was shortly after that that I started having a skin rash that looked like chicken pox occur. And then those um, blisters got infected. So I called my doctor because I needed to do something about these skin infections. And I described it to her and I said, we're seeing all these stories about COVID rashes that are like chicken pox. And she said, well, you had a negative test. I don't think this is COVID anymore. And it was like, you know, we're two or three months into this virus. How do we know it's not COVID anymore? I don't think we know enough about this. But, you know, I was like, you know, there's no point in getting into an argument with your doctor at that point. She was still willing to prescribe something for the skin infections. I still had no choice but to manage symptoms at home. So I kept doing that. Um, I was more concerned that, you know, she dismissed my uh, seven-year-old's cough. At that point, they had been coughing for over six weeks, and she asked if they had allergies. It's like, they didn't just develop allergies out of the blue. Like, they're still coughing because of COVID. Um, so I was a bit frustrated at that uh, lack of willingness to admit that these ongoing symptoms were related to COVID. You know, on a personal level, it was really hard to deal with the fact that there was no acknowledgement anywhere of these long-term COVID symptoms and these long recoveries. And I really found my, my comfort and my people in social media forums where people from around the world were reporting that they had these symptoms and these patterns and this experience. So I knew that I wasn't going crazy and I knew that it wasn't just me. And as we started to see more media coverage of these long cases, my doctor was prepared to admit that our symptoms were still COVID and to make referrals. So I have been referred to an infectious disease doctor and an immunologist, and my daughter has been referred to a respirologist. So I have already had the appointment with the immunologist. And I think it was a perfect example of how medicine should work in that he listened to my whole story, went through it detail by detail with me, and then admitted that he doesn't know what's happening. So he didn't try to pretend that he knew, he didn't try to pretend it wasn't happening. And he said, we're just gonna run tests and see if we can figure it out. Awesome, yeah, that is so comforting when a doctor says, I don't know, but I'm still, gonna, I'm still yeah. gonna try. Uh, so, what about those tests with the immunologist? How are they going? Uh, so I gave seven vials of blood last week and I'm waiting to hear what the results are. Okay. And what was the other one that you got a referral for? An infectious disease doctor. So I'm still waiting on that appointment to happen. Okay. Have you got word of when that will be? No, but I'm hoping soon. Mm -hmm. So uh, your frustration with the medical system and the non-acknowledgement of the long-haul COVID folks brought you into the advocacy world. Tell me some of your experiences around that. Yeah, so I began to realize as I was listening to all these stories that people had that we were all having similar experiences um, where we were the only person a doctor had or the only person in a community who had um, this experience of long-term COVID. So it was really easy for the 
doctor or the family members or the employer to say, I don't believe you. Um, that's not what the public health guidelines say. And yet we were all connected with one another and sharing these stories, you know, connected to other Canadians, but also connected to Americans and people from um, France, the UK, Netherlands, uh, Finland and Sweden. So I felt that it was really important to, um, to draw these connections and make sure these stories were heard. Um, so I participated in the survey of patients that was done by a group of volunteers through the Body Politics Slack. And um, that was uh, reported on by the CBC. And I was able to share my family's story in regard to that. Um, and, you know, there was some other media coverage that was done by CTV and Global. And we were seeing the difference that that was making, just having media coverage to point to. Um, but I was talking to my cousin, who is a doctor at Sick Kids in Toronto, um, to ask whether there were research programs that she knew about that were happening that I could connect my family to. And she didn't, but she told me that the problem is in the Canadian system, we don't have one healthcare system. We have 14 healthcare systems, you know, one for each province and territory, and then uh, healthcare that's directly provided by the federal government uh, for First Nations on reserve. And we don't have the equivalent of the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control that the U.S. has, where they can identify that there's this concern emerging or this trend happening and direct research to start happening. Um, so there's no, there's no one body or no one person in Canada that says, hey, we're seeing all these reports pop up across the country. We should probably start uh, looking into them in a coordinated way and make sure that we're sharing information and making sure that we're tracking these cases as they occur and learning as much as we can. So I felt that we really needed to connect these two things, um, to share the stories of survivors, um, but also to connect the leaders of Canada's 14 different healthcare systems and say, we need you guys to work together in response to this. This is a problem that's affecting people from across the country. Um, so I worked with volunteers that I met on social media to write a letter to Canada's uh, chief public health officers, um, federal, provincial, and territorial, to say, hey, this is our experience. This is what's happening to us. This is our experience of trying to get a diagnosis and of trying to get medical care. And we urgently need you to work together on research, on providing standards for medical care for people with long-term COVID symptoms, and to create a presumptive diagnosis to address the fact that most of us were denied access to testing back in March and April. And so you sent this letter out to all of these health officials uh, across Canada, and what has been the response? Uh, it's been very muted so far. So. Um, Lauren Pelly, a reporter with the CBC, asked the Ontario uh, Chief Public Health Officer for a response and uh, his ministry issued a statement saying that they were looking at the letter, um, but that has been the only response from decision makers. So pretty much a non-response. That's right. So. Uh, you're a bit ahead of the curve in terms of long haul advocacy or long haul COVID patient advocacy. And I, 
And I assume it's partially because of the witnessing of the experience of your husband living with MECFS. Uh, tell us how witnessing his experience impacted, influenced your advocacy with long haul COVID. So Matt has had CFS since 2005, and he's been among one of the luckier um, patients or people living with CFS in that he was diagnosed very quickly. Um, he has had access to therapy and income support, um, but you know, in many ways, he's still a poster child for ME-CFS in that we've had to do a lot of work ourselves to ensure that he gets any kind of medical care or therapy. Um, and even then, you know, his condition is really untreated and it's been a matter of cobbling together a day-to-day -day existence as best we can for 15 years. His doctor has been supportive in terms of filling out paperwork. His doctor hasn't had a lot of ideas in terms of how to uh, help Matt uh, make progress in his treatment. His insurance company uh, tried to push him into um, behavioral therapy, uh, graded exercise therapy, neither of which helped, and the exercise therapy actually made it worse. Um, and then they kind of abandoned uh, any attempts to, to assist him either. So we had to learn on our own how to do research into a condition, how to find communities online that had ideas or that could just provide moral and emotional support. We've had to learn how to wade through things and discern what is um, just pure snake oil and not worth trying and what might sound a bit crazier out there but is worth giving a shot. So on the healthcare side, it's certainly given us the sense that doctors don't have all the answers, that doctors are not always there to help you. Sometimes what doctors are really good at is writing referrals and uh, not much else, and that you have to be prepared to be your own advocate. And similarly on the political side, um, you know, I've seen firsthand how the MECFS community is marginalized even within the disability community in Canada and the disability community is already very marginalized. You know that we have this patchwork of programs for income security that leaves many people falling through the gaps and then almost no investment in research um, that might actually identify therapies or treatments that would actually help people to improve their health and so again, that's provided, you know, we, we haven't had an expectation that all you need to do is provide information and governments are going to act because we've seen firsthand for the past 15 years that that's not how governments operate. Yeah, in spite of Canada having the highest MECFS rates in the world, uh, I think the 2016 Statistics Canada Canadian Community Health Survey uh, found 1.9% of Canadians had been diagnosed with MECFS. So in spite of having the highest rates in the world, for decades there has been near zero uh, research funding for it. Recently there was a, a crumb thrown towards MECFS research, but uh, 
so when we chatted briefly the other day, you made the point that if there had have been research funding for the last few decades, as there should have been, even if it had been equitable, we probably wouldn't be in this position today with the long haul COVID folks. Mm -hmm. And we know from the first SARS virus in uh, 2003 that some percentage of long haul COVID uh, patients are going to go on to develop ME-CFS and fibromyalgia. Um, depending on the study, you know, um, the first time around it was anywhere between 20 to 40 percent of patients developed CFS. And we know that there's a lot of other illnesses that have a post-viral fatigue element um, or people can go through a serious post-viral fatigue afterwards but we haven't developed any tools or resources to identify who those people are what illnesses it happens with and we have no therapies or treatments or guidelines to provide these people with that might stop them from progressing down the road to cfs so you know among the things I'm seeing that I'm really concerned about are graded exercise therapy recommendations for people with COVID. Like we've seen this already with uh, MECFS that graded exercise therapy is the worst possible thing you can do when your body just can't adjust to exercise and exertion. And what I'm seeing with COVID is that any attempt to push yourself um, gets punished. And you know, I would even say I'm one of the lucky ones in that the relapses that I've had are fairly minor, but there are some people who are ending up bedridden because they tried to push themselves and they're ending up sicker than they were in the first place. So I don't understand why the guidelines to people wouldn't be to rest as much as possible, more than you think you need to, uh, to the point where rest is actually painful. Yes, where resting is hard. Yeah, where it's work, yeah. you know, where you have to put in actual effort to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, puzzling how the medical system and our public officials don't seem to be acknowledging the long haul COVID patients. When they give, give the stats, they talk about how many people they tested that day, how many were positive, how many are considered recovered, but there's this whole invisibilization uh, by the politicians and then by the medical system, a lot of them are denying or causing harm by saying, try exercise or it's anxiety. Let mm -hmm. me put you on psych meds. Uh, so there's multiple ways that the medical system can cause harm by being ill-informed or ignorant of ME and what's happening in long haul and how that's connected with uh, politicians. Yeah. So, given that they're not really responding to your open letter, what's next on your agenda to get the government and the medical system moving? Um, well, there are a number of organizing uh, activities underway among people who are experiencing long-term COVID symptoms, uh, a survey specifically for Canadian patients, lots of uh, media uh, interviews. Actually, the media is really in Canada finally starting to pay attention to this issue and I think that's starting to make a difference and more attempts to speak directly to decision makers whether that's through collective uh, efforts or one-on-one -on -one. just making sure the more um, decision makers politicians and doctors there are who know somebody who hear a story who are connected to the issue who can't deny that it's happening
Yeah, and I think I put on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, as horrible as it is to say, the more politicians and physicians and celebrities that get COVID and don't recover, the better off our medical system will be because they will make those changes. Yeah, and that's one of the ironies of the situation right now, that the UK and the US are really driving awareness and research into long-term symptoms just because of the sheer number of cases they've had and the sheer number of healthcare professionals who've been infected. So I've seen firsthand the way um, healthcare professionals who have uh, personal stories get validated in a way that us uh, ordinary Joes do not. Um, but you know, if it helps to drive the issue forward, I'm happy to share every one of those stories that I see. So, Having witnessed what your husband has had to go through with ME, the hallmark symptom of, of ME is this dysfunctional response to exertion. Having experienced that dysfunctional response to exertion yourself, seeing your kids not fully recovered, how are you feeling about your future of your health, your family's health, as it intersects with our medical system? It's been a real roller coaster for the past four months, especially with so little information about this disease and what the long-term implications might be. Um, you know, I've been talking to a therapist uh, who's been helping me deal with the mental and emotional aspects of being this ill for this long. And at one point she, when I was talking about this, asked me, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, the problem is I don't even know what to be afraid of. Um, you know, we could be talking about a chronic persistent illness uh, that's going to affect uh, each of us for the rest of our lives. But even that could be, you know, something completely and totally different from the spectrum of HIV and hepatitis uh, to the spectrum of something like, you know, measles or chickenpox that lays dormant, uh, but you might have effects pop up down the line like shingles. I think we don't know enough yet to know what long-term impacts there will be. Um, as we are seeing an upward trajectory in our health and starting to come closer to what you might call recovery, I'm starting to feel more optimistic that this is just a case of, uh, you know, the body being completely hammered by this awful virus and it takes a while to recover, but there will be full recoveries, even if it takes six months or a year. You know, I've read some firsthand accounts of people who had SARS in 2003 or people who had MERS, the uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Um, and some of these people have recoveries that took 12 months or 18 months, but they did fully recover. So I'm holding on to that hope as hard as I can. But I do have to admit that what I find the hardest is not the idea that I would be sick for the rest of my life. Um, Matt's already facing a situation where he's probably going to be ill for the rest of his life. But it's really hard to accept that my seven-year-olds and my nine-year-old might be affected by this for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that is very frightening when it happens to children. I can only imagine what you're feeling around that. Uh, where can folks find you on social media if they want to connect with you? So they can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Chandra Pasma. I also really can't recommend highly enough that people join one of the support groups that exists. 
If you Google body politics Slack, you can find a web page that will help you connect to the Slack. And it's got over 5,000 people from around the world. Lots of really good information being shared there. And there's a channel specifically for Canadians on that Slack. And there's also two uh, Canadian Facebook groups. One is Long Haul COVID Canada and the other is Long Haul COVID Support Group Canada. Um, both of them have hundreds of Canadians sharing their story, sharing information, and that's where most of the political uh, organizing and media outreach is happening these days. Okay, great. And I'll include those links in the show notes. And tell folks how you spell your name, Chandra. It's C-H-A-N-D-R-A-P-A-S-M-A. That's how you'll be found on Twitter. Great. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for the advocacy work you're doing. Uh, you know I'm totally in your corner. Thanks so much, Scott. You can support the podcast by subscribing on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you're struggling with your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.